Uh, good morning. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. Uh, like Jess and Peter said earlier, we're glad that you're here. Thanks for joining us, especially if you're a visitor. We are happy that you are here. We appreciate you giving up a few hours of your morning for, for braving uh, this Minnesota January weather to come join us. Uh, we're very glad, very glad that you are here this morning. I want to tell you a story this morning as, as we head into our passage about a, a person you probably know or at least recognize. Maya Moore is a, uh, maybe the greatest female uh, Minnesota athlete ever, pro athlete, maybe even the greatest Minnesota athlete ever. Hopefully you've heard of her. She, uh, her team in college, I think, like won 90 straight games, multiple championships, went years without her team ever experiencing a loss. Sports Illustrated called Maya Moore, the greatest winner in the history of women's basketball. Uh, she won multiple, uh, four championships with the Minnesota Lynx. She won MVP awards and much, much more. Yet, in the prime of her career, she actually left the WNBA, which a lot of Minnesota fans did not like, uh, both because they're fans as well as because she just kind of gave it up in order to help fight for the release of a man who was uh, wrongly convicted, wrongly accused, and even though he was innocent, he was 25 years into a 50-year sentence. And that's this man here, a man named Jonathan Irons. He was an innocent man that spent over half of his life, convicted I think at age 15 to 50 years, uh, who was wrongfully accused as police uh, framed him, hid evidence, and only after many, many years of work with organizations and Maya Moore using her uh, resources, her uh, fame, in order to bring lots of light onto this situation, was he finally released in July 2020. It's a very sad story of an innocent man uh, thrown into prison, even though he wasn't guilty, after police fabricated evidence, lied under oath again and again at the trial, suppressed the evidence of the real perpetrator, and so this story, the story of what happened to this man, this innocent man, as well as uh, him being released and his connection to one of our local sports heroes, shocked the hearts of both Minnesotans and, and nationally as we heard this story. And, and none of us can empathize with such injustice happening in our life, our, you know, going to prison for over half our lives, being framed. So we can't empathize with it. Yet, if you know the story, if you watch the interviews, if you saw it play out in the news uh, we felt it. We felt how wrong this was, how just wrong this injustice was, how unfair and just evil it was. We deeply felt this unbelievable injustice of an innocent man being declared guilty, someone who's done nothing wrong, being detained and then unjustly sentenced to life in prison, though innocent. And these stories of injustice, whether it's this one or the other ones you've heard of before, they just rock us, especially if we really just sit down and think of the details or, or put actual real faces of real people we know or hear interviews and see uh, a person tell their story. And there's not many things in this world more ugly and wrong than the innocent getting a sham trial full of deceit, lies, broken laws, and those in power working against the freedom of the innocent. And that's what we have in our story today. We're in a sermon series in the Gospel of John. John was one of Jesus' disciples who walked along with him. And he has been recounting Jesus' teachings, his life, all of his signs and wonders that he did. And now we're at the end of John. 
where Jesus, just before this, has been uh, betrayed by Judas. He's been arrested under the cover of darkness. He's been brought to the religious rulers, and already his trial is a sham. There's already lies. There's already false motivation. And that's where we pick up our passage today. So today's sermon is entitled, The Scandalous Yet Great, yet great Reversal. We'll see what that means in just a minute. We'll be looking at John 18, verses 28 through the end of the chapter. And if you want to follow along, all this will be on the screen behind me or also inside uh, your worship folders or in a pew Bible in front of you if you'd like to follow along. So to set up our passage, we're actually going to read it kind of in three chunks and kind of go through as the story unfolds. But like I said, what has just happened so far, Jesus has now been arrested the, the crowd, the mob, has brought Jesus before the religious rulers, the high priest, and now he's being brought in front of Pilate, the Roman governor. And that's where we pick up our passage today in verse 28. There we go. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the place of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. And this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death that he was going to die. So this is our story so far. We now meet a new character, maybe one of the most infamous villains, or at least bad guy, person on the wrong side in all of history, this guy named Pilate. So Pilate, he was a Roman governor. So Rome is ruling over Israel, over the Jewish people right now. They get to kind of rule themselves in some ways, but Rome is definitely in control. And uh, Pilate serves as the Roman governor here of Judea, the the, the setting where we take place. And we see that he actually does not want to judge Jewish matters, especially Jewish religious matters. He, he responds to them by saying, why don't you guys just judge him? Why, why are you bringing him here to me? And what's going on here, we see that the, San, the Sanhedrin or the Jewish religious uh, organization, the Jewish religious rulers, they could not execute people. At least Roman, Rome had taken away that right from them. So in order to execute Jesus, they need to bring him to Rome to do it. So the Jewish leaders had to get approval from Pilate, yet this presented a problem for them. Why, why would Pilate execute someone who's breaking religious rules? Now other people have picked up on, it seems like in the New Testament, there's, there are some other times where uh, the Jewish religious rulers are trying to execute people. We see it in Acts when they kill Stephen. So probably what's going on is that Maybe in, in smaller places or with less important people, the Jewish religious leaders could stone people for breaking certain Old Testament laws. And what's going on here, the religious rulers don't want to get themselves ceremonially unclean as it is the Passover. They also want this to be very uh, public and final execution of this guy who's created so much problems for him. But the Jewish religious leaders cannot execute them, so they bring him to Pilate, but they have to get Pilate, this, this Roman guy who cares nothing about Jewish blasphemy laws. They have to get him to sign off on executing this man. And so they don't just say, 
he's claimed to be God. They don't just say he's broken the Sabbath. They bring Pilate and they tell him that he is a traitor. He's a traitor against Caesar. He's claiming to be a king, and there is only one king, and that is Caesar. So they bring a political charge against Jesus, accusing him of treason by saying that he is a king opposed to Caesar. And as we've seen uh, already in our passage, and, and right last week's as well, which is the way that Jesus was uh, uh, arrested and his trial began, we're going to see more injustice against Jesus in this sham trial. We are going to see made-up charges. We're going to see people lying under oath. We're going to see Jesus' trial beginning at night. We're going to see political power play moves in order to advance agendas or to keep the peace or protect reputations. So that's where we're at here in our passage. This beginning, inter, uh, this beginning of this um, dialogue between Pilate and the religious leaders and Jesus. And we're going to see this continue into next week's passage as well. But throughout history, uh, you, I'm sure, know this. The Jewish people have received much hatred and violence against them. And one of the main ways that this has been stoked, or at the very least, been validated, is because of this claim that, well, it was the Jews that killed Jesus. At the very least, this uh, line that Jesus was killed by the Jewish people has been used as an excuse for hatred, persecution, and violence against the Jewish people. Whether it's true or not, we're going to talk about it in a second, but this line has been used to say, well, I have a right to hate the Jewish people because look how evil they are. They killed Jesus, the Son of God. And this anti-Semitism has again reared its head in, in comments and tweets and interviews by many high-profile high people recently. So answering this question about who killed Jesus is actually an important one for us to answer. But we're going to see as we do answer it in, in just a moment that the reason it's so important is so much more than just reasons of peace and respect and tolerance. But this re, uh, this, the answer to the question of who killed Jesus is going to be of great spiritual and gospel significance. So, who killed Jesus? Again, I'm kind of jumping ahead in the story. Spoiler alert, Jesus will get executed uh, soon even though it hasn't quite happened yet in our story, we have to ask this, we're asking this question, who did kill Jesus? Well, right off the bat, we see that it is uh, the Jewish religious leaders. Verse 31, we read uh, them say to Pilate, we have no right to execute him. We want to execute him. We want him dead. He deserves capital punishment, yet under Roman law, we can't do it, so we need you to do it, Pilate. And actually, we see later on in the Bible in Acts, Peter's preaching, he's uh, speaking to the Jewish people, and he says, you are the ones that killed Jesus. So it is true that, in part at least, the Jewish religious leaders did kill Jesus. Yet as we continue our story, we also see that it was the Romans that killed Jesus, or the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. We're going to see in next week's passage, uh, Pilate hands Jesus over to his soldiers to be crucified. So Rome crucifies Jesus. Pilate has the power and orders him to be executed. And Roman soldiers nail him to the cross and pierce his side. So the Romans and the Gentiles also killed Jesus. But theologically, if we read all of the Bible, we realize it's not just people groups that are responsible for the death of Jesus, but we killed Jesus. 
It was our sin. So insert a mirror right here. Couldn't do that on the screen, but you know, think of a mirror. We are the ones that killed Jesus, you and I. We actually, uh, John, the, the writer that wrote the Gospel of John here, later on after Jesus' death and resurrection, he writes more about this in a letter called 1 John, and he says, uh, God loved us, God loved humanity, and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So the reason God the Son, Jesus, took on human flesh and came into this world was to atone for the sacrifice, or to atone for our sins, to make a sacrifice because you and me and all of humanity were rebellious against God. That's why Jesus came into the world, as an atoning sacrifice for you and me and for our sins. We have seen and testified that the Father, God the Father, has sent the Son, Jesus, to be the Savior of the world. That was Christ's point in coming into the world. This is the type of rescuer, the type of Messiah he was going to be, a Savior that had to save people that were against him, that were traitors, that had rebelled against our king. And so all three of these are important. Some are historical, some are theological, but the most important, and we've seen this again and again in John, and if you're just visiting, we're going to help you see this. Who killed Jesus? Who was responsible for the death of Jesus? The greatest answer, the most important answer, is that Jesus himself is responsible. We saw it in our passage today. Verse 32 says, This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. So this is all playing out because Jesus said, I'm going to die by crucifixion. I'm not going to get stoned, even though the religious rulers think I'm, I'm blaspheming, think I'm calling myself God, and he is. And so the, the, the rightful consequence for breaking that law was, was stoning, but Jesus said at the very beginning of his ministry, I'm going to die by being risen up. And the way that someone dies by being lifted up was through crucifixion. So even in our passage here, we see today Jesus is behind his death. So we saw that earlier when Jesus was teaching to Nicodemus, if you remember that passage, leading right up to the famous John 3.16, if you know that passage, listen to what he says. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. The way that you and I in humanity were going to get offered eternal life was by looking at the Son of Man, by looking at Jesus Christ lifted up. A type of execution where someone is thrown up on a cross, lifted high above the ground. In other gospel accounts, we read that Jesus even uh, prophesied that he would be crucified using that exact word. Matthew 20, 18 and 19 being one example of this. Yet some even argue against this idea. It, it sounds maybe barbaric or old-fashioned or strange, or maybe we just don't like it. Some people argue against this idea of Jesus dying for us, calling it something like divine child abuse, God the Father abusing his innocent son. Yet this false view is missing a lot. First of all, Jesus was, was a man in his 30s, not a child. But this false view also misses even more important things like Jesus' desire to fulfill his mission. He knew why he came into the world as a savior, as a Messiah, and he knew exactly what that would take in order to accomplish his mission. But it wasn't only his mission as if he was 
just a good soldier or just a good son listening to his father. It was even more than that. We're told that it was because of his love for you and me, because of Jesus' deep love for you, for everyone in this room, for humanity, for the villains in our story. That's why he came to die. Hebrews 12 says that he even did so joyfully. He didn't just do it suffering and hating it, but he loved you in that just barely won out, but he even joyfully endured the cross. We read earlier in John, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. He makes it very clear. And John helps us by reminding us of this. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. This is Jesus' desire because he loves you and me. He knew what his mission was. No one can take his life from him. And we're seeing that all throughout the story. Like Peter just referenced, when Jesus gets arrested, they come to get him and they said, we're looking for Jesus. Or Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus. And he says, I am. And all the soldiers just like fall down to the ground like it was some Harry Potter curse or something. And then they get up and they come and arrest him. Last week, Pastor Chris talked about how maybe two weeks ago, how they actually arrest Jesus. And he showed a picture of the superhero movie Superman, where Superman is in handcuffs, which is just a ridiculous scene to think about an all-powerful being, like being held back by handcuffs. And that's exactly what we're seeing in our story. Jesus declares, no one can take my life. He has command over the wind and the waves, over diseased bodies, over life and death. And here, He could bust out if he wanted. He could call down angels if he wanted. He could make the religious rulers see the truth or open Pilate's heart. Yet he knows his mission. He deeply loves us and no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down because of his love for you and me. We've seen that in his arrest and we're going to see that again and again and again throughout his trial. Pastor and author uh, Dave Furman His name got pushed off, sorry. This is Dave Furman. He writes, Jesus marched willingly and quietly to the cross, and yet it wasn't because he had lost. Jesus was not outsmarted by his opponents. This was not a mistake or an accident. It was not plan B of God's eternal plan of salvation. The crucifixion of the innocent Lamb of God was God's plan from eternity past. So now as we continue to go through our stories, we continue to look at Jesus' trial with his very life hanging in the balance. Watch how he responds. Watch how Jesus responds. And we'll see that here again, Jesus is dead set on his mission. He knows he needs to die. He could have convinced Pilate. He could have had his disciples rescue him. He could have used his supernatural power Yet he knows what he needs to do. He needs to die in our place for the guilty. Let's continue with our passage. Picking up in verse 33. Pilate went back inside the palace, summoning Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked him, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. 
Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. So our passage continues now, and Jesus and Pilate begin to interact. I I love how uh, Jesus says back to Pilate, well, you said that I'm a king. It came out of your own mouth here. But what does Jesus mean? Pilate asks him, so are you a king? Are these accusations against you real? Are you a threat to Caesar? Do you deserve to be punished for this? And Jesus responds with, yes, I am a king. Yes, you said it. It's true. Yes, I have a kingdom. But what kind of a king is he? What kind of a kingdom does he bring? He said in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. And he doesn't say so to get out of this execution that awaits him, but rather because it's true. So what does Jesus mean when he says, my kingdom is not of this world? Well, a couple things that it doesn't mean. When Jesus says his kingdom is not of this world, it doesn't mean that the physical isn't important. As if Jesus' kingdom is only spiritual or only uh, somewhere off in heaven. But rather the physical is important. It's important throughout Jesus' life. He heals physically sick, physically burdened, physically demonized people. He cares about the physical. Yet Jesus' kingdom is not fully in the physical right now. More on that in a second. This also does not mean that it is an earthly kingdom in all the ways that we would think about it. So when we think about a king or a ruler or a politician building a kingdom, this is not what Jesus has in mind. He's not going to set up an earthly palace right there on earth. He's not going to defeat the Romans in the way that they all desire. He's not going to belittle and beat up the the opposing political party. So Jesus also doesn't mean that our ultimate enemy or their ultimate enemy was Rome. Or for us, doesn't mean that our ultimate enemy is ISIS or North Korea or whatever type of group we think is against us. But rather, Jesus is saying our greatest enemy is Satan and sin, and the effects of that being death. We read more about this as the New Testament unpacks exactly what this means. In Ephesians 6, 12, we read, Christians, for for us, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We will not take up arms and battle the Romans or our government or uh, whatever, but rather, we don't battle against flesh and blood, Christian, church, but we battle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Yes, we will fight against evil in some ways, physically in our real lives, but our greatest enemy is uh, spiritual. Our greatest enemy are Satan and his servants. And this is just being whispered at as Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So what does Jesus mean? Well, he gives us some clues here too. He says, my kingdom is coming from another place. So we read more in the New Testament about, uh, as the early church tells people about Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, they use phrases like, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. It's breaking through. It's almost here. The effects of it are beginning to take place. 
And so when Jesus says, my kingdom is from another place, he's telling us, at least in part, that his kingdom is coming from God himself. He's not building it up here, but rather God coming in to the world, establishing his kingdom. It's beginning to break into this world. Now it is primarily spiritual. Yet it will become physical and all-consuming when at the end of the age Jesus comes victorious as judge and ruling king. And we read about that in Revelation 21 in, in the new heaven and the new earth. And so this is confusing. It's tough to understand. It's not as clear. And so uh, theologians throughout history have used this phrase, the already but not yet of Jesus' kingdom or the kingdom of God. So us living on this side of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, the kingdom is already here. We have victory over sin. If you are a Christian here today, you have been raised with Christ. You are a new creation you are no longer enslaved to sin. You no longer are enslaved by death. It's already here, yet, also not yet. Not yet fully. Unless Jesus comes back, all of us will physically die someday. You will sin, probably in the next few hours or even few minutes. So even though we are Christians, for those of us in this room, we're new creations, we're declared innocent before God, there's still this not yet. Jesus hasn't come back a second time to fully usher in his kingdom. We still wage war against these sinful bodies as well. So the kingdom of God is at hand. It's breaking in. It's near. Victory is possible over sin. Satan has been defeated, and he knows he has, yet he's still wrecking havoc. We have been made new in Christ, and we still wrestle with our fallen former nature and battle the sin in our own hearts and minds. And Satan's power is waning, yet it is still fighting against us. So that helps, although it's confusing and not uh, maybe the answer we always want, this helps us understand why life is so hard. Why deeply, or why people who deeply love Jesus still get cancer and die. Why people who uh, are fellow believers are getting persecuted across this world. Why you as a Christian who love Jesus deeply still wrestle with the same sin that's been plaguing your life for decades. Why you and another Christian just have so much conflict, even though you both are in Christ. Jesus' kingdom is at hand. It's breaking into the world. The victory has been won yet until he returns. We live in this already not yet reality. So the hope is real, and we put our hope not just in physical healings or, or interpersonal reconciliation or success here and right now, even though we pray for it, and that does happen often. We put our full hope in the eternal and when Jesus comes and returns. Let's keep going. And it's here in our passage, Jesus and Pilate, the next part of their interaction, they have this kind of deep yet short philosophical uh, conversation where Jesus says, you say that I'm a king. In fact, this is the reason that I came into the world, Pilate, this person that can release him or put him to death. Jesus says, this is the reason. I, I, I was born and I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate responds with, what is truth? 
We don't really know how he said that. Is he mocking Jesus? Is he befuddled himself? Is he confused? Is he stressed trying to figure out what is truth? What do I need to do as a judge in, in this situation? But Jesus says that he is truth. If you remember from earlier on in his ministry, Jesus, one of the things he said is he doesn't just speak truth. He doesn't just not lie, but he says, I am the way, I am the truth. I am truth embodied in a person. Everything about me is true and real. If you want to believe the truth, you would believe in me. He says right here. Yet, as you can guess, we uh, individually, we as a culture, we have a hard time with truth statements, right? If you think about, or maybe if you just typed in the word truth and, you know, Google uh, search, my truth would maybe pop up. Or truth is relative. So whether it's the truth is relative mantra where we live in a, a postmodern world where what's true for you is different than for me, or whether it's people living their truth, we just don't really like this idea that there is one truth, that there is one reality. Yet Jesus says that he is truth. Jesus says that if you believe in truth, you will trust in him. And I think what's so hard about this, at least at some level, is that when something is true, when we acknowledge that it's true, it demands something of us. It demands that we live like it's true. It demands that we respond. So when Jesus is arguing that he is truth, you can see that he's saying, people should listen to me. People should believe me if what I'm saying is truth. In fact, Jesus describes his mission he describes his salvation, as we just read, just read earlier in Ephesians 2, that the gospel is called the message of truth. We see that Jesus is bringing in this message, this good news of the gospel, that he is both God and Savior, come into the world to rescue everyone who will not just believe in their truth or think that another religion, another group's truth is truth, but rather believe in him as the one truth, thus entering into his reign and realm and his kingdom. And with this, with Jesus' great statement about if you would believe in truth, you would be on my side, you would listen to me. And Pilate, either angrily or confused, confusingly, says, what is truth? Pilate then leaves and goes out to the crowd again. It's kind of wild to think, I didn't say this earlier, but you think about what's going on. At the beginning of our passage, it says, the Jewish uh, religious rulers, this crowd, they bring Jesus to Pilate. So Pilate's a Gentile, not a Jewish person. They bring him to where Pilate's at, and they don't enter in. They stay outside in the courtyard. And kind of this, like, you know, commentators pick up on this, just this great irony. They're so worried about, oh, we can't break this one law about entering a Gentile's home or else we become ceremonially unclean. They're so worried about that. They make Pilate, their ruler, come out to us, Pilate. Come out to us again and again. So that they don't break this one little law, so that they don't become unclean, while at the same time, they're fabricating lies, they're execu or wanting to execute the one and only innocent man who's ever lived. All right, let's continue our last few verses. Verses 38 through 40. Pilate goes back out to the Jews. With this, Pilate went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. 
But it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Or other translations use the phrase insurrection or rebellion. So Pilate, in another way to try to appease or confuse or trick the crowd, he wants to get rid of this. He comes out to them and he admits, I find no basis for a charge against this man. He says, he's innocent. This Jesus, he's innocent. But hey, I'll throw you a bone here, crowd. Maybe you're trying to do a political play. I don't know. But hey, we have this little tradition here where Rome gives up one of our prisoners. How about this? I'll give you back Jesus in place, right? I'll give you Jesus. I'll give you the king of the Jews. I'll give you your king back. I think he's innocent. And they respond with, no, we want someone else. We want this guy named Barabbas. Let's talk about him for just a second. Now, honestly, I I joke a lot, but honestly, uh, trigger warning as we move forward. I'm going to show pictures of uh, the riots that happened here in our city and another one of the January 6th insurrection. So if um, that bothers you, it's coming. You can close your eyes. Uh, but who is Barabbas? He's described as this. He's described as being a part of an uprising. Or other translations say he was a part of an insurrection. I think in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, he's described as a murderer. So this guy Barabbas, he's not just a guy who kind of did some bad things and got thrown into jail, but he's actually an insurrectionist. He's, he's a traitor against Rome. He's, he's violently rebelled against the ruling authority and committed murder while doing it. And we're supposed to really feel the wrongness, the scandal of what's going on here. So for you, whether when you think of the word insurrectionist or people taking a part in a rebellion or an uprising, whether this is what really moves your heart, as uh, many of us watched our city burn just a few years ago and can really feel uh, lots of emotions about the people who burned down our city, or whether it's January 6th, this insurrection, whatever it might be. I'm not making a political statement at all, but what I'm trying to do is help us to see when we hear about Barabbas and who he is, he is one of these two types of people, whichever for you feels the worst, the most irredeemable, the most guilty. And he didn't just put his feet up on Pelosi's desk. He didn't just set fire to a building, but he even murdered people. He was violent. He killed people during this insurrection. And we're supposed to feel that and understand that because what's going on here in our last verse is that the crowds pick that person over the innocent. They pick a murderous insurrectionist instead of the king of the Jews. And that is a scandal, right? It was wrong when we heard about Jonathan Irons at the beginning of our sermon here today, a guy who was wrongfully accused, who spent 25 years in prison. How much more so is it when the creator of the universe, perfectly innocent, trades place trades places with a violent insurrectionist. This guy's name is Barabbas. And if you know 
Amama tell you. Bar means son of. Abba means father. So this guy's name means son of the father. And some people pick up on son of the father is about the most generic, most boring name out there, right? It's not son of Paul or son of Maximus. It's he's a son and he has a dad. And we have two sons of the father here in our story. And John gives us lots of clues to help us see theologically the scandal of what is going on. So in our two characters who are switching spots here, we see we have two sons of the father, Barabbas, whose name means son of the father, and Jesus, who is a son, the son of God the father. Barabbas rules by taking life, by killing people and trying to overthrow, whereas Jesus rules in his kingdom by giving life. Barabbas wants to overthrow the king while Jesus himself is the rightful king of the Jews, as his title says, but not just of the Jews, the rightful king of Pilate in the Roman world, in 21st century America, in all the cosmos. Barabbas, in our story, he's guilty, yet he's freed, while Jesus is innocent and executed. We see in our story here today, the innocent is convicted and sentenced to death, while the guilty takes their innocence and is released in freedom. The story takes a dark turn for us as readers when we realize this is not just scandalous, right? Our sermon title today was The Scandal of a Reversal here, a scandalous reversal. But our story takes a dark turn. It's not just, oh, that's horrible, and it's out there. But when we realize that Barabbas is you and me, when Barabbas is a picture of humanity, we realize who we are in the story, in our dark uh, future, apart from Jesus. So here we have this Jesus versus Barabbas, the innocent taking place of the guilty. Barabbas is us, you and me, in our sins, in our rebellion against God. His story reflects ours again and again and again. Like Barabbas, you and I, we were guilty of rebellion. But not just a rebellion against Caesar, but a rebellion against the emperor of all emperors. Rebellion against the, the king of the cosmos, the creator God. Like Barabbas, we too were on death row. Physically, each one of us is marching towards our own death. We will all die eventually. As well as spiritually, the Bible describes us in our sins as being spiritually dead. So like Barabbas, this is the bad news for us, that we're not just guilty of rebellion, we're also on death row. There's no appeals court. There's no hope of rescue. We're sitting in a dark cell, chained, deep in a prison, just waiting our final execution. So that is the bad, the scandalous news of what's going on here today as we realize we're Barabbas. But as the story continues, and again, more spoiler alerts, I'm going to give you what's coming up in our story, what begins here. Jesus will take our guilt, just like he took the guilt of Barabbas. If we are Barabbas, Jesus takes the guilt, and like Barabbas, we are declared innocent. Jesus carries our cross, and we get his freedom. That's probably literally what happened, is 
Jesus watched Barab, or sorry, Barabbas watched Jesus in just a few hours take a cross on his back and walk the exact same route to a hill where Barabbas was supposed to be crucified. And that's our story as well. Jesus carries our cross and we get his freedom. Jesus dies in our place, yet we receive new life. The New Testament helps us see how this is our story and how Jesus played this out for us as well. St. Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, for your sake, for my sake, for those in the crowd's sake, uh, God the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This was God's plan. This was Jesus' desire that he would take you and I who are guilty and make us innocent, make us righteous before God while he took on our innocence, while he, while he bore our sin. Again, Pastor and author Dave Furman writes about this. He says, you and I are sinners. We sit in a spiritual prison, bound, helpless, awaiting the day we will receive the just punishment we deserve. We sit on death row, waiting to be dragged out to death, not knowing when God's righteous judgment will come down. But there is good news. The good news is that when you repent of your sin and when you trust in Jesus, trust in the truth, he will save you. Jesus goes off the cross in your, uh, goes off to the cross in your place. He gets what you deserve. You get what he deserves. It is the greatest exchange in all of history. Jesus gives up his life so that you can live. That's true for everyone here in this room. It's true for everyone here in this story. It does not matter what your past is. In our story here today, we really have the worst of the worst. We have scumbag, murderous, violent insurrectionists getting declared innocent, getting a walk free out of prison, getting off of death row because of Jesus. And we have self-righteous religious people. We have pagan people who are afraid of consequences and so bend the truth and take part in injustice. So all of us fall into that spectrum someplace and maybe a bunch of those things describe us even now or in different parts of our life. There's hope for you. Jesus died in the place of, of you and me and he offers all of this to everyone here in this room. You are not outside of that offer. You are not outside of that invitation to put your trust in him. And if you already have, this is a reality that describes you. You are now a part of his kingdom. You have now received his innocence. You have now been declared not guilty. Even if death uh, beats you in these bodies right now, these actual bodies will be resurrected and raised, and you will have a physical, eternal life with your king in his kingdom on the new heaven and the new earth. Tim Keller summarizes our passage here today and what Jesus accomplished. He writes, On the cross, Jesus is getting what we deserve so that we can get what he deserves. When you see that this great reversal is for you, when you see that he gave up all his cosmic wealth and came into our poverty so that you could be spiritually rich, it changes you. Friends, that is, that is our one hope for change. 
is to put our trust in that, to believe that we really are Barabbas, to believe that we really are guilty. We're on death row. We have no hope of saving ourselves. We're deserving of death. We've rebelled against our king and creator. When we believe that, then the gospel is so much more beautiful. And as Keller says, that's what actually changes us. That's what changes our hearts, our minds. That's what leads us to love and to good deeds towards others as a fruit of this. So Jesus offers you today, believe in his work. Believe in him taking your place. Trust in him, the author of life and the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your great love that you've shown towards us in your son, Jesus, that you died in our place, which is unbelievable to think about. Many of us in this room don't feel that bad. We don't think we deserve death. But when we really realize in reality, we are like Barabbas. We are uh, rebels against you. We have committed violence in our heart against you. We're in the crowd yelling for your crucifixion. When we believe that, your forgiveness, you taking our punishment, you wearing our cross, wearing our sin, dying in our place, is so much more powerful and, and, and changes us. So God, we pray for more of that. We pray at the same time we would believe how sinful we are and how without hope we are apart from you and at the same time be confident in how much you love us and that this story is true of us. And for those in this room who haven't believed it yet, we pray today they would see your great love for them and receive. All they have to do is just trust you. Trust that what you did on the cross was good enough for them and that that is all they need. They don't have to clean themselves up as if Barabbas could do anything to get himself out of that prison, to get himself declared innocent, to get himself uh, to have life instead of his impending execution. So thank you for this great story that didn't just happen in human history, but is a picture of our reality. We thank you, God, for your great love for us. Amen.